Last week we walked through basically all of Acts 1 and 2, uh, and we are going to swing the pendulum in the opposite direction now this week, and we're going to go through five verses. Okay, so we made it through nearly two whole chapters last week, and now we're going to go through five verses and see if we even have time for that. Okay, so let's start in Acts 2, 42. We're going to be reading Acts 2, 42 through 47 together. Uh, one small little piece of liturgy that we like to practice together here at Redemption Hill is that whenever the text for the sermon is read uh, at the end of the reading, we say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you'd like, you can join us in saying, thanks be to God together after that. Amen. Uh, Acts 2, 42. And they, being the disciples and all who had called on the name of the Lord Jesus up to that point, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common." And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, as we have started just this very uh, small time together going through the book of Acts, and we're not, we just finished almost two years of walking through the whole book of Luke, and, and we're taking just several weeks to walk through the first part of the book of Acts as we get ready to move into the plan right now is to move into the book of Ephesians. Well, the book of Ephesians is a letter to the early church. And so what we're doing by walking through the first few chapters of the book of Acts is we're helping to build a bridge for ourselves between Jesus' public ministry and life in his physical body and the church that resulted from it, right? And what we said last week is if the book of Luke and all the Gospels are a representation to us of the life and ministry of Jesus in his physical body, then the book of Acts is a representation of the life and ministry of Jesus in his spiritual body, which is the church. And so Acts really does provide a bridge for us as we go from the life and ministry of Jesus in his physical body to the church that resulted uh, through that life and ministry. And the book of Acts shows us the beginning of that early church. We saw last week as the Holy Spirit was poured out on the early church. And this was not just some random thing that happened. It was something they were expecting because it was something that Jesus told them he was going to do. We looked in John uh, chapter 14 and 16 as he said, I am going to send you another helper who will come and be with you. He's, he's with you now, but will be in you, he said. And, and we looked at how that day of Pentecost, that special day that happened when the Holy Spirit was poured out on those who were in the upper room was a day that marked a transition from the old covenant into the new covenant. And all who stand uh, by faith, by the grace of alone, in Christ alone, who stand in his grace, stand in that new covenant. We are in that new covenant, and as such, we should not expect to experience some other time-altering, shifting experience like the day of Pentecost, because there's no better covenant to be moved into than the one that we are already in, which is the covenant of grace because of the work of Christ alone. Amen? So that was something that happened for one time, and now we stand in that covenant, and we are renewed in that covenant day by day, and the Holy Spirit is given to all those who believe. And so when we talk about Jesus being in our hearts, 
really what are we talking about? We're talking about the witness of the Holy Spirit being within us. Because where is Jesus? Well, Jesus ascended in bodily form to heaven to sit at the right hand of God on the throne and rule and reign, as it says so many times throughout the scriptures, until he has made every enemy his footstool, at which time what's going to happen? He's going to return. And the dead in Christ will be caught up in the air with him to join the wedding procession of the Lamb as he comes down uh, to rule and reign and reconcile on all things to himself. That's what we have to look forward to. And that is an eternal weight of glory. And it is the hope of the glory of God that we rejoice in that Romans chapter 5 talks about. And so here we see and we looked last week and we saw, okay, here's several things that really are for us descriptive. They are descriptive of the things that happened and took place. But now we're going to move into a different part of the testimony and the witness of Scripture into what now really becomes, while at one time descriptive, it also can become for us prescriptive. And I want you to see this as we go to Revelation chapter 2. And I remind you that part of what we're getting ready to do is walk into the book of Ephesians. What is really, really cool about the book of Ephesians, if you'll allow me that very descriptive word, um, what's amazing about the book of Ephesians is that through the New Testament, we actually get a very broad picture of the book of Ephesians, uh, of the church in Ephesus. That's The book of Ephesians was written to the church of Ephesus. It was a church that Paul planted, that Timothy pastored, that later uh, John would come and be a part of after his exile on the Isle of Patmos, and, and even writes to the church of Ephesus here. Uh, Jesus, through John, writes to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. So let's look and see what he says. In Revelation 2 verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, we see here in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus writing to the church of Ephesus through the apostle John, and he says to them, I've got one thing against you, and what is it? You've, you've abandoned your first love. And, and so how, how do we reconcile that? Well, we reconcile that by going to look at what they were doing. They were doing good things. The things that they were doing were not bad, evil, sinful things. Jesus uh, says... Um, you, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. They've been testing false teachers and figuring out who was really an apostle and who wasn't. And these were good things, but what does he say? You've abandoned your first love. And if we look, we see that their toil and their patient endurance and their works were something that they were clinging to rather than clinging to the work of the cross and the work of Christ alone. And in that, they had lost the love that compelled them to do these things and rather were doing these things for the sake of the things themselves. So, and when we do that, it, we, we risk going between two extremes. One that's just complete self-absorption where it's all about us and we're doing it for us to the other end where we're doing it now to earn something from God rather than resting 
in the finished work of Christ on our behalf alone. And so Jesus says what? I, I would that you would return, repent, and do the works you had at first. So not a lot of time has passed between Jesus' ascension, Acts chapter 1 through 3, the planting of the church of Ephesus, and the writing of the book of Revelation. And here John is already saying to them, you've, you've already kind of gone into autopilot, rote, routine, religion mode, rather than letting the things that you're doing to be fueled by what Jesus has done for you and the love of God that's compelling you to do these things. This I have against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. It's become about works and toil. They had not simply lost that love and feeling, but rather they had lost sight of what truly matters, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've lost sight that the works that they were doing, while good, were not an end to themselves. They were meant to be the fruit of lives whose hearts were captivated by the love and the work of Jesus. It was meant to be coming from a heart that says with Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ compels us. Amen. And so Jesus tells the church, I want you to progress by beginning again. Go back to what you did at first. And this is where Acts 2, 42 through 47, while yes and amen is descriptive of what the church was about when the church first started, but it also becomes for us, in a sense, prescriptive to say, if we want to get back to what the works that we did at first and the gospel that shaped us as a people of God, then let's get back to the works we did at first. And how can we know what those are? We go back and we look at the early church and we say, how was the gospel shaping and informing who they were as the people of God? What were the works that they were doing? And let's get busy doing those things. Amen? This is not unlike what happened nearly 500 years ago in 1517 when Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church and the Reformation was sparked throughout the known world. What was the cry of the Reformation? Well, the cry of the Reformation is in the name. It's reform. And what is reform? It's not to create something new. It's to get back to what we were supposed to be about in the very beginning. And that's what it was all about. They weren't calling for something new. They were calling to reform back to what it was meant to be about from the very beginning. And even through uh, the Reformation, which was heralded in Latin, semper reformanda, which means always be reforming, which means as the church of Jesus Christ, we have to understand the truth that we sing so often in Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, which is what? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, that we as a people are prone to slip back into our old ways, to slip back into our sinful nature, which clings to hold on to our own works for ourselves to earn. And whenever we cling to our own works to earn, we get what working to earn gives us, and that's wages. But Paul will say in Romans 6.23 that the wages that we can earn, the only wages that we can earn is what? Death. But it's the gift of God. The gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Which is all of what we were singing this morning. All of grace accomplished by one mediator. One man who stands between us and God, Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah, praise God. And, and can we just like affirm that when, when, when good theology is coming from the pulpit, it's okay to burst out in doxology, right? To worship God for the good things he's teaching us. Good theology should inform our mind and inflame our hearts to worship him. Amen? So yes, praise the Lord. Praise God. This is what God is doing. And what is the mission of this church that Jesus was forming? It's it's discipleship. So go to Matthew chapter 16. And we'll get back to Acts 2.42, I promise. 
So in Matthew chapter 16, we have the first introduction to this thing called the church. And Jesus is with his disciples, and there's this exchange that takes place between Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus asks them, and he says, hey, who, who do people say that I, that I am? I mean, we've been doing this, this thing for a while. We've been walking together for a little while. And, and, and this ministry has been happening uh, from Jesus amongst the people in Judea throughout the countryside as he travels along. And, and, and people begin to flock to Jesus to gather around him. A huge miracle just took place a couple chapters ago when Jesus walks on the water and then Peter walks on the water as well. little caveat here, we always freak out. Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and he sank. Shame, 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 Peter. But hang on, people. He walked on the water. That's pretty amazing. Uh, when's the last time you did that? <clears throat> Anyways, um, I think sometimes we should hang out there a little more than on the other one. Uh, Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, which was not him, was not Jesus shaming Peter, but it was more like a good father who's saying to his child who's just learned to walk and then fell down, you walked. Next time you'll walk even further. Amen. And so notice that it is Peter then who experienced something special and unique with God, walking on the water, trusting in him, being saved immediately when he calls out. Because as he begins to sink, immediately, the word is immediately, he calls out Jesus and immediately Jesus is there, picks up his hand, and then him and Jesus walk on water together and get back in the boat. I love that story and I could freak out and we could just hang out there, but that's not what today is about. So we're going to keep going. So fast forward two chapters, Matthew 16. Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, you know, I mean, people are still trying to figure it out. And some people say you're, you're, you're a prophet. Maybe, maybe even Elijah or John the Baptist come back from the dead, which is, you know, amazing that people would go that far to look and say perhaps a resurrection has happened and this might be one of those guys. But it's even better, isn't it? And so Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? Look at uh, verse, oh, uh, let's look at verse number 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, notice he, the same guy that jumped out of the boat is the same one speaking up here. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not uh, revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, we can just camp out here for a second. I want you to understand something, that no one can reveal to you that Jesus is the Son of God except the Father by the Spirit. That is why no one can call on the name of the Lord, lest the Spirit be the one that gives them the utterance. I mean, we can say Jesus, people can say the name Jesus, but to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that he raised, uh, that God raised him from the dead, that comes strictly from God by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is touching that. He's saying, you, you, you haven't come up with this yourself. Believing in Jesus unto salvation is not something you can come up with on your own. It's not something that you can kind of like make yourself do. It's a gift of God through the Holy Spirit. He says, but my father is in heaven and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, this is the first time in the New Testament that we are introduced to this concept of church. Now, a little church history and textual translation, little kind of, Field note, footnote, all right? Uh, back when King Henry, author, or King James, authorized the King James Version of the Bible, he had 15 different rules that he said, I will go ahead and risk my own nick against all those who will hate me for doing this by authorizing you scholars to create a new version of the Bible that is not authorized by Rome, but you must do these 15 things. And number three was that wherever necessary, you will translate the congregation as church rather 
than congregation. And so rather than, and and limited resources be what they were as well, rather than drawing from the Greek in Matthew 16, the King James draws from other translations of translations, which is where we get the word church, which came from a Germanic and even Celtic words that were combined together that simply meant structure and building. Why? Because the king could exercise authority over the structures and buildings of the church of Jesus, but it's a lot harder to exercise an authority that's not granted by Scripture over a people whose sovereign can only be King Jesus. Then my belief is extrapolating then from that text. We have a host over the last several hundred years of people who have emphasized the building over what the original translation of this text was, which was the word from Konia Greek, which is ekklesia, which has absolutely nothing to do with buildings and structures and has everything to do with an assembly of called out ones or people. So literally what Jesus is saying here is I will build my people, my assembly. I'm going to build a people that have been called out of the world and unto myself. I'm going to build them. And what does he say? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against this assembly of called out ones. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never seen someone beat someone up with gates. Now, I don't know why, but growing up, people used to use this verse and they say, brother, the gates of hell, they're just, they're coming against me this week. They're just really, the gates of hell really got me down. I know they're not supposed to prevail, but they really got me down. Can I tell you something? You don't use gates to beat anybody up, okay? When this verse says the gates of hell will not prevail, that has nothing to do with the kingdom of the enemy advancing and, and, and us somehow being able to withstand it. It has everything to do with the people of God advancing such that we advance into enemy territory, knock down the gates of the enemy, and take territory back for the kingdom of God and for the cause of the gospel. Amen? This is Sparta. Sorry, I don't recommend that movie, but you've probably seen the clip. All right? It's knocking down the gates. We are the ones making war against the enemy. Amen? He's supposed to be on the defense. But we've retreated into our buildings and structures because of bad teaching. And I'll just stop there. All right. So this is what the church is. It's this assembly, this called out ones, ones that God has before the foundations of the earth elected and predestined unto himself to draw them to himself and to his son. He's called them out and he's gathering them together. Remember the shepherd that goes after the lost sheep and brings them home. And what does Jesus say? I will not fail to get every single one of them. Amen? Praise God. That's what Jesus is doing. And he's saying, I will build my church. And we look back to the Psalms and we learn what? If unless the Lord builds the house, they that labor, labor in vain. And even there, we're not talking about a physical structure. The structure of the temple was a shadow of the substance, which is Christ. Which is why Christ would come and say, tear down this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. Amen? And so Jesus becomes, he is the true and better temple for us. And we find ourselves in him rather than in a structure or a building. Amen? And so as we look then and we see what the church is, it's this assembly of called out ones. Then it becomes, well, what what are we supposed to do? Well, rest in and rejoice in the finished work of the cross? Yes and amen. But is there anything else? Well, yes. What, what happens is that God then invites us, Jesus invites us into the missio day, the mission of God. Now, I want you to see this. I wasn't going to go here, but let's go here. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. And, and God created all things, and He created all things for His glory. Amen? We know that uh, John 1 mimics that creation narrative. And what does it say? It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there was nothing that was made that was not made through Him. It was made by His Word. And we go back to Genesis, and we see God spoke, and it was. And God spoke, and it was. And God spoke, and it was. But then what did He do? He spoke all these things, and then He formed His people, didn't He? And here we see in Matthew 16, Jesus is coming. And what is he doing? He is, he is beginning the process of a new creative order. And he's speaking something into existence in Matthew chapter 16. I just, my, I get so riled up when people come and tell me, brother, you just need to speak things that aren't as though they are because God is the one who speaks things that aren't as though they are and something happens. I speak things that aren't as though they are and nothing happens. Why? Because I'm not God. But when God speaks something that isn't as though it was, it, it becomes. Because that's what he does. And Jesus speaks his church into existence in Matthew 16. Now, again, let's go back to Genesis, creative order. And what happens? God forms his people. And what does he do with his people? He gives them purpose meaning. He gives them a reason for being there. And what does he do? He says, look, I created all of this and for my glory. Now what? Go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue all things, take dominion, go be a part of what I have created, right? Jesus speaks the church into existence, a new creative order. And then what does he do? Through his blood, through his sacrifice, through his resurrection, through this news that goes out and says, you who are dead can now come to life. Though you are dead in your trespasses and sin, God has made you alive in Christ Jesus. And what is Jesus doing through the gospel? He is forming his people. He's forming his people. That's why we say the gospel forms a family or it forms a community. It forms a people. And so everyone who hears this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ awakens in their heart. They come to life and Jesus is forming his people. So what's next? Purpose and a reason for being there, right? And what is it? It's being invited into what Jesus has created. And so where do we find that purpose? We find it at the end of the book of Matthew, right before Jesus is about to leave and go back home to heaven, to sit on the throne, to rule and to reign. And what does he say? He says, verse 18 of Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Right? And so, what's happened? Jesus speaks this new creative order into existence. He forms his people through the gospel, and then he invites them into the missio day, into the mission of God. He gives them purpose and a reason. And what's the purpose and the reason? It's the same as it was in Genesis. Go, be fruitful, and multiply, fill, and subdue the earth, and take dominion. Or in other words, make disciples. What, what was God saying to Adam and Eve? He was saying, hey, you guys, I've put you together. I've given you the equipment. Go make more little use." And Jesus comes to his people and he says, look, guys, I've formed you. I've created you. I've given you the equipment. Now go make more little use. And so what's the mission of the church? The mission of the church is to make more little us's. That's it. Do you understand that that is what we are called to do? It doesn't say... 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go call some people pastors and make them make disciples. No, Jesus is speaking to all of his people that he has formed, and he's saying, I've given you the equipment. Go make more little use. And so what was the early church about doing in the beginning? Making more little thems. They were making disciples. And what do disciples do? They make disciples. And what do disciples do? They make more disciples. And those disciples make more disciples. And those disciples make more disciples. And when disciples don't make disciples, they're not really being disciples. Right? The time that we get around to stop making people, there will be no more people. Right? It's kind of what we do. Of all the things under God's sun and on this green earth, that's probably the one thing we're actually pretty good at is making more people. And as the people of Jesus, we should be good at making more people of Jesus. Amen? That's what we're called to do. So we like really have just begun. All right. So I want you to watch this little video, and then we're going to get back into the text. Check this out. In the past, churches have spent large amounts of resources to construct the most attractive places imaginable for the community in which they were situated. Great music, compelling teaching, and a host of programs designed to gather people together were the staple of such church communities. Anyone who wanted to come was welcome, and church members were encouraged to invite their friends and neighbors. Generally, people had a pleasant experience. The people who came and were cared for seemed relatively similar. Education, income, pastimes, race, struggles, and histories seemed to be almost identical. Eventually, someone asked the question, What about all the people who aren't like us, but who live around us? Why aren't they here too? In response, the church increased its marketing budget, direct mailing the community, taking out ads in local papers, buying radio time, releasing a fresh webpage, and offering to host the world's greatest event. The church was determined to be the center of everything great that happened in the community. Church members began to rely on the church to do the work of conveying God's story in the world. If someone could be brought to an event, they could hear about Jesus from a professional teacher. Inviting people became synonymous with evangelism. The missional church, on the other hand, empowers its members to be the church in the community. The church trains, resources, encourages, and challenges its people to live out the good news in their community with those who would otherwise be suspicious of a church and its marketing efforts. The church sends out its members to live among people unfamiliar with church customs, songs, and what it holds sacred, just like a foreign missionary. The missional church recognizes then that every believer embodies the life of the church in their neighborhood, in their school, or at their place of work, each one of them telling God's story in the context of compassionate and genuine relationships. So what if church looked like that? Isn't that kind of what it looked like in the beginning? Well, let's, let's find out. The one thing that, that is so important to understand is that like a seed in the individual, God has given the capacity for the whole. In each individual, God has given the capacity for the whole. So there's a shipwreck on an island and there's one Christian on the boat and everyone makes it to the island alive and there's one Christian what should we expect happens on that island well if we look at our present condition we should say that one Christian finds a nice little shady spot on the island holds himself up like Jonah and waits for a better ship to come But is that what we should expect to happen? No, the, the capacity of the whole is in the individual, which means what? Disciples make disciples, and that Christian should get busy making disciples. And once he makes one disciple, we no longer have one individual Christian. We now have what? A group of called out ones. The church. And those two should then not go get cozy by themselves over on the side and say, praise God, I finally got a friend. But they should still get busy making more disciples, right? Yes or no? Okay. 
Why wait for a shipwreck? That's what we should be doing now. We don't need a catastrophic event. We just need to walk out there and go do it and understand that God has, by His Spirit, through His Son, empowered us and given us the equipment and the capacity for the whole is in each individual that belongs to Jesus Christ. And so disciples should make disciples and churches should plant more churches who plant more churches who plant more churches who make more disciples who make more disciples who make more disciples who plant more churches. And that's how the kingdom of God advances and how the gates of hell do not prevail against the church. Amen? So the mission is discipleship. And we need to make disciples who make disciples because we are the Jesus gathered and formed people. So we gather and we go and we grow as disciples through specific means. Hear me. How do we do this? We do it through specific means that God has given us and through which the Holy Spirit matures and sanctifies the church of Jesus. And I really believe that Acts 2, 42 through 47 is a blueprint for us in how that Jesus by the Holy Spirit was maturing and sanctifying his church. And so I want us to see this, that they were being matured and sanctified through the word, through worship, through community, through service or mission and multiplication. And we simply here kind of distill that down into three, gospel, community, and mission, by which we mean all of those things. So uh, before we get jump right back into the text, I want you just to draw your attention to one thing real quick. The Reformers would say that there are three main marks of a true church, right? Because they were trying to determine, was the church they are part of a true church or not a true church? And they said, well, what's a true church? And so they went to the text of the Bible and through the New Testament, they said, okay, well, here are the things that we would say if, we're live, if, we, if we are submitted to Scripture, which sola scriptura, that's what they said, then this is what the mark of a true church is. The first three most important ones were, one, that the gospel was rightly preached, that the sacraments were purely administered, and that church discipline was being exercised. Okay? So bear that in mind. Now go to Acts 2.42. And I'll go there too, because I'm not there. Here we go. Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, who is they? We said it's all those who've called on the name of Jesus up to that point. Remember in Acts chapter 2 earlier, there were over 3,000 people now that were gathered together. You had the 12, you had 120 more, and then 3,000 people who were added to the church in one day. It's a lot of people, right? And, and so that's the they that Luke is referring to in Acts 2.42. And what's the first thing he says? That they are devoted to what? The apostles' teaching. Well, I really wish we could know what the apostles were teaching. Wouldn't that just really help us to understand what it was that they were devoted to? Oh, we know what the apostles were teaching. What were the apostles teaching? It's called the New Testament, right? Praise God. And what do we find in the New Testament? We find that the apostles were teaching the Old Testament with Jesus as the fulfillment of it. Which is why we can say rightly that the New Testament is the best commentary on the Old Testament. They were teaching what Jesus had taught them in the 40 days after his resurrection, like when he walked with the two on the road to Emmaus and began to tell, teach them how that everything from the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and the Proverbs were all concerning him, which is why we say that all of Scripture whispers in some places and shouts in others the name of Jesus. Amen? From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Him. Now just grab this for a second. This might be for somebody this morning. That conversely means it's not about you. And so if you're reading the Bible to see something about yourself, you're reading it wrongly. You need to be reading the Bible to see what it says about Jesus. From Genesis 
to Revelation. Now, will that reveal some things about you along the way? Yes and amen, it will, because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide soul and spirit, bone from marrow. It will cut you down and cut you to the quick. Because the Word of God will be a perfect reflection of God's character and holiness and a perfect reflection of your inability to meet that standard. And as such, the people that Jesus formed should be a people that are marked by confession, repentance, and reconciliation. Repeat, uh, rinse, repeat, and do it again. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Are you with me? All right. So they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, which is what? Jesus through all of Scripture. That's what they're teaching. And they're teaching it as Jesus, as the fulfillment of all of Scripture, which means what? It's talking about the gospel. Well, what else does it say? It says they were also devoted to fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, we already read through this, so remember that at the end of this, it talks about breaking bread again. Remember that? Kind of weird, isn't it? Why did Luke, like Luke was a doctor, he was pretty meticulous. We've already walked through all of the book of Luke. Like, I mean, he was meticulous. Did he just like forget that he wrote breaking bread twice? No, it's different kinds of breaking bread. Notice that this breaking bread is connected to the teaching of God's word, the fellowship of his people around God's word, and the prayers. Which means what? This has the feeling of more of a corporate gathering as the people of God are submitting themselves to the teaching of God's word and the administration of the meal that Jesus commanded them to do in remembrance of him, which is communion or the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, the Eucharist. And so we see here in Acts 2.42 a lot what looks like the corporate gathering of the saints sitting under the teaching of God's word, having fellowship. The word there is koinonia, and, and it, means, it means to share in. It literally is where we get the word communion from. So let's move. And we, So first we see what are they devoted to? It's the word. How is Jesus by the Holy Spirit through these means? What is the first means that Jesus is using to sanctify and grow and mature his church? It's, it's his word. It's his word. So Paul will write in Romans chapter 12, and he'll say, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And then what does it say? Then what does it say? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. Get alone by yourself in a room, get dark, maybe some candles, incense, get a little like trance music going and just sit there and go, I'm going to renew my mind. Renew, renew, renew. That's not what it means. Can I tell you how Christians renew their mind? Through the word of God. Through the word of God sitting under it faithfully week by week as the gospel is proclaimed through every text of scripture and reading and studying it for themselves every day so that they themselves can be, as Luther said, I preach the gospel to my people every week because they forget it every week and I preach the gospel to myself every day. Why? Because I forget it every day. We need the word of God. We need that washing by the water of the word. We need to be renewed by the word of God, knowing that when we fail to believe the gospel, it means that our faith needs to increase. And how is faith increased, church? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So Jesus sanctifies and grows and matures his church first and foremost through his word. And here, just in this little passage, verse 1, we see what? The gospel rightly proclaimed. We see the, the sacraments rightly administered. And I believe we see church discipline as well. Why? Because when you get over 3,000 people together, and they're doing this all together, and there is koinonia, fellowship, unity, communion between them, I promise you that that was only taking place as discipline was being rightly administered by the apostles through that time. And if you fast forward through the book of Acts, you find that that to be true. Amen? It's right there in the first two verses, the first three marks of a true church. Verse 
43. Uh, we see uh, worship. What do you mean worship? It doesn't say the word worship. No, but what does it say? It says, and awe came upon every soul. Isn't that what it says? Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Well, what is awe? What is awe? It's worship. It's when we, after being taught His Word that informs our mind, when we are administered the sacraments and we come and we thank God for, his, for being mindful of us as people, that He gave us this thing that week by week we can put our hands on and feel the grain and taste the sweetness of the wine and remember that those who taste of Christ, taste and see that the Lord is good, that He has provided something that was outside of us to fill what was lacking inside of us through His broken body, through His shed blood, for our forgiveness and our redemption so that we might be justified before God. If that doesn't bring you to awe, you need to hear the gospel again. And so we see that awe is on every soul. And so Jesus is using the word and now worship to sanctify and grow and mature his church as they get busy in the mission that he has for them. But, but what's next? It doesn't stop there. Verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Let's keep going. Uh, well, let's stop there. So they, they were together. They had all things in common. And, and so this is where we get even our word for co community, common unity. They were unified in commonness together. Well, what was their common unity? Because we know from chapter uh, just earlier in chapter 2, they don't even speak the same language, all of them, right? Because the Holy Spirit came down, they're, they're proclaiming the gospel in languages that they never were taught or learned to people who didn't speak their language, and they're learning. The, so, I mean, they're not even unified around a common language. So what is unifying the church of Jesus? Oh, it's Jesus, Jesus is the common unity of his church. That's why we don't need to segment and separate and segregate ourselves according to, well, let's have all the singles over there, all you single people, all my single ladies over here, okay? And men, let's keep you guys apart, okay? Single men over here, okay? And, and old people over here and young people over here. And let's get, let's oh, you guys like motorcycles? Let's get you motorcycle freaks over there. And you rock and roll guys, you can go with them. But the folk people go over there. And anyone like biking, going to do the MS-150 this year? Okay, you, you bike freaks, you go over there. And let's segment and segregate and separate everybody. All right, is everyone happy now because you like each other, because you have that in common? Oh, we've missed something, haven't we? We've missed the beauty that the one thing that's supposed to hold us together is not our individual affinities and the things that we like, but rather Jesus. That's something that should lead us to awe and worship of God is that I'm connected to some people that if it wasn't for Jesus, I don't think I would ever be connected to these people. Like we should be able to look and praise God. We can look even this morning in just a small sampling of our city in, that's represented here and say, you know what, this is starting to look a little bit more like heaven than it did even a few months ago. Why? Because of the diversity of the people that God is calling to himself. Because he said that he, we should go and make disciples of every ethnos. And that has nothing to do with race and ethnicity as much as it does with a type of people. Jesus is drawing all types of people to himself. He's calling them out, making them, forming them by his gospel into his church which is his body and he is the head. Amen. Colossians 1. And so we see in community again this word koinonia, fellowship, to share in. It's the same kind of sharing that Paul will talk about in Romans chapter 6 when he says we share in Jesus' death through baptism and we also will share in his life because he has been resurrected. It's the same sharing that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 when he says... 
I want to, I want to share in Christ's suffering that I may also share in the power of the resurrection. And so in this sharing what is taking place, how is common unity being lived out amongst God's people? Through death and resurrection. Dying to ourselves for the sake of each other so that Jesus can raise something beautiful out of it. Amen? Bearing our cross, it's not about what we like. It's about who Jesus is and what he's doing. So we see the word, we see worship, we see community. But in this being common together, what did they begin to do? Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they're serving one another. And not only serving one another, but now this begins to bleed out. Why? Because as the people of God live and do the work of God in the everyday stuff of life, it begins to affect other everyday people. And people who aren't even a part of the family of God begin to experience what God is doing in the people of God as they begin to serve people just because God served them in Christ, which is supposed to be the motivation, by the way. Why should we welcome people? Because God in Christ welcomed us. Why should we be hospitable to people? Because God in Christ was hospitable to us. Why should we be kind to people that aren't kind to us? Because God was kind to us in Christ when we were his enemies. And so everything that God was doing for us in Christ, we now begin to do for each other. First and foremost, Paul would say, especially the household of faith. But that should begin to bleed over even into people who aren't a part of the household of faith. Why? Because that kindness that we begin to show them is, is what? It's, it's an apologetic for the gospel that it is the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. That Jesus truly is a propitiatory sacrifice. He stood in between God's wrath and men and fully, completely absorbed the wrath of God. And all who believe will be saved. Amen? So we see they're serving, and, and we would call this mission, that they're on mission. They're engaged in the Missio Dei, selling possessions, distributing as any had need, living out God's law under grace rather than condemnation. Now, this is not communism. This wasn't compulsory. Compul it wasn't compulsory. The, Peter, James, and John weren't set, sitting there going, right, I'll take the deed to your house now. Hey, I noticed that flashy new car that you bought for the church last week. No, it wasn't compulsory. It was as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, as the love of God compelled them. They said, you know what? I see one of my brothers and sisters in need, and this thing, I don't need it. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to give the money to them. I see the community of faith needs this thing to continue to make more disciples who make more disciples better. So I'm going to sacrifice of what God has given to me to be a steward of, and I'm going to give it to the people of God. And so that's what they did. How do we know it wasn't compulsory? Because in verse 46, in chapter 12, verse 12, in chapter 17, verse 5, 18, verse 7, Romans 16, verse 5, and there are more and more and more I could go, but we're just going to stop there. We see the Christians still own their own houses. They still had their own possessions. This wasn't communism. This was the love of Christ compelling. Why do we fight against communism? Because it makes what is supposed to be the love of God compelling us compulsory, which makes it law rather than grace. It's not communism at work. It's not under human compulsion, but rather compelled by the love of Christ, voluntarily sacrificing for the good of others. So we have a biblical responsibility, Galatians 6, 9 through 10, to the household of faith first or especially, but that should bleed through, and that looks like serving and mission. Verse 46, what do we see now? Well, we see, we see something happening. We see, and day by day, Day by day by day by day by day by day, daily, what? Attending the temple together and breaking bread where now? In their homes, 
They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. The best way to understand this is that the people of God who were called by God and formed by the gospel, who were living in community together, the way that works is they began to let the, the daily rhythms of their life start to come together. And so what did that mean? It meant that they were eating together because we eat. Most of us two or three times a day at least, right? You hit three, we're talking 21 different opportunities in a week together with the household of faith to encourage each other in the faith, to remind each other of the gospel, to serve one another, to know where each other are at and what's going on in each other's life. 21 different opportunities. And that's just if you hit the normal minimum. Forget coffee and forget ice cream and forget the pub. Like you add those in, I mean, we could be together a lot. But you know, just keep being satisfied with Sunday mornings. All right. No, it's not. It's not. Because then we quit being the household of faith. And we just start being a, an event and a structure. We, we see their lives are being intertwined. What does that look like for us? It means the rhythms of our life. Well, what are the rhythms of our life? We eat. We tell stories. We listen to stories. We bless each other. We celebrate. We party. We rest and we play. And we should allow those rhythms of our lives to begin to intermingle with others of the household of faith. And again, that should also spill out to others who aren't a part of the household of faith. Inviting those who are not of the faith into our rhythms of eating and telling stories and listening to stories and celebrating and partying and resting and recreating and playing and enjoying. Right? Westminster? Question number one, what does this look like as we, as we what, as we, what are we supposed to do? What's, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. What are these rhythms about? It's in these rhythms that we're glorifying God and enjoying him forever. And we should invite people in to see that. And what happens? What are you doing? Eating. Yeah, but it's not the same kind of eating that I do. What are, what are you doing? We're just we're playing. Yeah, but it's different. Well, how? Why? Because the gospel is infusing everything that we do. And that begins to spill out. And as people see the people of God being the people of God in the everyday stuff of life, sharing and being in community together, dying to self so that Jesus can resurrect something beautiful through that death with each other, those who are not of the faith get an apologetic for what the gospel is all about. That's what it's supposed to be. And what does it all result in? Verse 47, doxology, worship, again, praise, again, praising God and having favor with all the people. Notice, again, it's spilling out. It's spilling out. It's spilling out. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So God by His Spirit, through His Son, calls together and forms His people, and He grows and sanctifies and matures them through specific means, the means of His Word, through worship, through community, through service, and through multiplication. But here's the beautiful thing about multiplication. Who was the one at work doing the multiplying in verse 47? It was the Lord. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So church, the church is not an event. It's a people. And Jesus didn't die so that we could have a Christian event. He lived, served, suffered, and died so that we could become his people who are sent into every part of the world on his behalf. And the gospel should infuse all of the rhythms of our life. And if it doesn't, then everything that we do will just become like it says in Revelations chapter 2, toil and works divorced from the love of Christ that compels us.
Now, can I just be real with you? At times for us individually and corporately, we're going to get there. There are going to be days where you recognize just kind of toiling and working at this thing. There may be times and seasons where us together as a church, we take an account of what's happening in the body and we find we're not healthy because we've allowed the things that originally were being compelled by the love of Christ just to become toil and work. And so what is the call then? The call is what it says in Revelations 2. Repent and go back to the things you did at the first. And so that's what we're calling each other to. We engage in this rhythm of submission and awe and communion and service to God through the means he has ordained in his group of called out ones, this assembly, not out of fear of rejection or God's, of God's vengeance, but rather the motivating factors if we truly believe the gospel in our pursuit of holiness and our desire to be sanctified and more and more conformed by the Spirit into the image of the Son. The motivating factor should not be fear, but rather the overwhelming delight of being 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, loved, pursued, and saved by a gracious heavenly Father whose kindness leads us to repentance. And if this is true, and if Romans 8, 38, and 39 is true, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, then we, church, can run to God rather than away from Him when we find ourselves failing at this. as his children who know that their father delights in him. But the only way this happens is if we remain steadfastly centered on the gospel, the all-sufficiency of Christ for us, his work, his sacrifice, his righteousness, and not our own. We have to rest in what he has provided rather than trying to work to earn for ourselves. We must not move on from the gospel. We must never graduate from the gospel, but rather the gospel of Jesus, his finished work on the cross, his glorious resurrection, his ascension to sit and reign and rule and power at the right hand of God should provide our daily and ongoing motivation to pursue holiness and experience the reality of who we are in Christ. And what is that, church? Adopted sons and daughters of God. His called out ones, called by His name, who live and have His law written on their hearts. Isn't that what God said He was going to do? That a time was going to come where He would save and redeem for Himself a people whose law, His law would be written on their hearts rather than on tablets of stone. And his word would be on their tongues, who are because of the blood of Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, perfect, spotless, blameless, because of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to our account by grace and faith alone. This is not a call to be Jesus to anyone. This is a call to believe Jesus and a call to call everyone else to believe Jesus as, as well. Because Jesus is better. I don't want you to be Jesus. Jesus doesn't want you to be Jesus. He was pretty good at being that himself. He is good at being that himself. He doesn't need you to be Jesus. He wants you to be a disciple who makes disciples of Jesus. And in that, we can boast in our need for a Savior. We don't need to lie, cover up, hide, or be ashamed. For let us not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power of God to salvation because the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for you and in your place, not for once upon a time, some time in your history, but for every single day of your life we can begin to rehearse this truth I was a sinner 
who needed Jesus to die for me. And he did. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, God, you have provided specific means by which you have asked us to be a part of, to engage in, where you will sanctify and grow us together in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through your word, through worship, through community together. God, this isn't something that we can do on our own, but it's something that you do when we are together. And God, you have then in that community called us to serve one another, to serve others even who are outside the community of faith. And you have promised that as we get back to that first love, as we reform to what you called us to be as this called out people that you have formed, God, you promised that you would build the house. And if you are building the house, then God, they that labor never labor in vain. So Lord, we pray that you would continue to build your group of called out ones even here in this place called Redemption Hill. And let us never forget who it's all about. It's about you. Our chief cornerstone, the rock of ages, whom we are built upon, whom we rest in and know that you've got it all under control. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. The sacrament is here to be received. I invite you to come, those who believe, receive of the bread and the wine, which represents the broken body and the blood of Jesus that was given for you, for the forgiveness of sin and for justification. Amen? Would you come?